0: This podcast contains sensitive topics and explicit language that may not be suitable for all listeners. Previously on The Shot.
1: And the prosecutors who we go up against, they they know which attorneys they can take lunch money from and which ones they're going to get a fight from. And I would say that we're both proud to be the kind that don't give up our lunch money easily.
2: You know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night thinking about Kareem Turner and what... You know, we were going to have to tell his mom if, you know, we went to court.
3: Why would somebody who's already got 97 years to do in the federal system, which is like life for sure, why would he ever plead guilty? We have a prepaid call from Cuba.
0: This is a recording of a call between a jailhouse informant and his sister.
4: God, I had to meet him. Uh-oh, and? I'm coming home, sir. I ain't even going to play with you. I ain't even going to joke around.
0: He just talked to detectives and found out that he can get his jail time cut if he testifies against Kareem Turner and Raymond Perry, if he IDs them as the guys who killed Norfolk police officer Victor Decker.
4: He said, just do the police, man. We're going to send you home. I ain't even going to play with Wonderful. you. This shit here is like a brass ring. I not like a brass ring. He was like it's just white people shit. He does what he told me. He started laughing. He was like, basically, it's like a big gold ring with a lot of diamonds for you. He was like, You good though. You definitely coming. Hey,
5: okay, just sit down.
4: Sit down. Is this what you do in the cafeteria? Sit down. How old are them kids? Fifth grade, nine, ten. Fifth grade? I thought it was fourth grade. Oh my God. Since I'm so old. I don't want to have all the women to do. I've been on cloud nine. I'm like, Ain't nothing can spoil my
0: good. Boy, I just been smiling and laughing. I'm
6: Gary Hargi. I'm Joanne Kimberlin. We're reporters at the Virginian Pilot in Norfolk, Virginia.
0: And this is the fourth episode of the Shot.
6: Preliminary hearings, even in high-profile cases, are usually pretty routine. They're basically the first step to a trial. A judge listens to just enough evidence to decide if there's probable cause, reasonable grounds to carry on with a prosecution. In Virginia, those hearings are usually the public's first chance to hear how police think the crime happened. Usually a cop and a couple of witnesses testify. But for Turner and Perry, the hearings were a little different. We got this
5: really unusual request from the Commonwealth Attorney's Office, and uh, they denied our request to have cameras in court. And they requested that all reporters in attendance not identify by either, I think it was name and occupation, any of the people that were going to testify, and they asked us all to agree to that. I don't know what other people did, but we declined to agree to that. And once we got to court, it was pretty clear why that was happening.
6: That's Mike Mather, the WTKR reporter who followed the case closely.
5: One by one, it was just a parade of orange jumpsuited inmates who were coming out and saying that they knew who had done this crime. And it was a really difficult thing to watch. I've covered so many cases with these jump-on informants, and only one has ever in my uh, career resulted in actual verified information. Most of them are just efforts to jump onto a case to spin a deal somewhere. And when I was watching these, it was really startling The prosecutors seemed to be feeding information to them as much as they were testifying. So there would be a little bit of a testimony, and then the, you know, you know, the snitches, they would call them, would um, kind of look at the prosecutor to see where he, you know, he was supposed to go. And it was just, I left that courtroom not believing that these people knew what they were talking about at all.
0: That's what it's called, jumping on. Virginia Beach Police won't talk to us for this podcast. Neither will Colin Stolle, the city's top prosecutor, but Harvey Bryant, Stolle's predecessor, did. The investigation began. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot to go on.
3: The Virginia Beach Police Department uh, worked on this very heavily with help from the Norfolk Police Department. And uh, people started you know, sort of rattling cages of informants that they knew. And I think the publicity had a lot to do with some of the people who came forward then from jails and penitentiaries who had been housed with either Turner or with uh, Raymond Perry and started to say, you, know, you need to come interview me. They are in trouble themselves, almost all of them. They've got a case coming up. They're trying to get credit for cooperating in some other investigation and they know that's the big card to play. I know something about this police officer who was
0: executed in the course of a murder. Beach detectives interviewed dozens of potential jailhouse informants. Some pointed a finger at someone else, like the one inmate who was dying of HIV. He tried to implicate a fellow gang member because he didn't want that guy to take over the gang after he was dead. He was in prison for sexual battery for knowingly infecting his baby's mother with AIDS. Other snitches pointed to the accused, saying they'd heard one or the other admit they'd killed that cop. Some said they'd heard it on the streets from Turner. Others said they'd heard it from Perry in prison. Other informants said they'd heard it secondhand from a guy who knew Turner or Perry, or even a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy. A few said they were with Perry the night it happened. Jennifer Stanton, Perry's lawyer, was stunned that jailhouse
6: testimony was all the prosecution had.
7: It's a capital case, and it's serious. And, and to his credit, Colin Staley wanted to make sure that he was able to give us what they had, or what he thought they had, I should say. So there turned out to be a list of probably over 20 potential jailhouse snitches in the case. And again, keep in mind, this is essentially all they have. By the time this case came along, I'd already been practicing well over 20 years. In any case where the Commonwealth's case hinges on essentially snitch testimony, because in this case there were no eyewitnesses, almost no forensics to speak of, and certainly no confession from my client, then, you know, Snitch testimony should first and foremost be suspect under any circumstances, but when you have nothing else to corroborate it, you, unequivocally, in my opinion, you have no business prosecuting that case. None.
6: With Perry facing the death penalty, Stanton knew she'd need help from a private investigator.
8: I'm Larry Smith, I'm a retired FBI agent. And I ran my own private investigative business after I retired for 10 years, and I have since retired from that business and now work only for one group of attorneys in Richmond as their investigator. I look at my job. It's not my job to get anybody off. That's not my job. What we did, we decided that we would take all of the information given to us through discovery uh, from the prosecutors, And we would go out and independently try to prove or disprove all of that information. That included statements, that included crime scene evidence, uh, witness statements, uh, crime scene evidence. And our goal was to prove them true or prove them false.
6: They got the records of every snitch on the list. They talked to as many as they could, the ones who'd cooperate anyway.
0: Did you find that the confessions or the the, the statements from jailhouse snitches in this case could be corro- corroborated? No,
8: and just the opposite. And almost
7: not, not any of them. <laughs> and, and
8: and almost every case, almost every facet, we found to be false, and we we were able to prove that. Not just with anecdotal testimonies of different people, but with, in some cases, actual physical evidence, paper trails, documents, things that we were able to find.
7: Yeah, and you. you that should have
8: been. They could have been found.
7: Had but, they looked. There was uh, one snitch who got his deal for his time cut up front before our our case was ever due to go to trial. And turned out he was very obviously having some sort of relationship with his bondswoman because we had had subpoenaed all of the phone calls. It was frightening having to listen to some of this stuff. Detectives had
6: eliminated their share of would-be informants. They'd fanned out to jails and penitentiaries following leads that branched out like trees. They dismissed the stories that just didn't line up. Some were easy, like the inmates who said they'd cross paths with Perry or Turner behind bars, but logs showed they'd never been in the same jail at the same time. One snitch rose to the top, Lamont Davenport. That was his jailhouse call you heard at the top of this episode. Davenport was 38 at the time, in prison on federal drug charges. He'd been busted by the FBI for dealing coke, crack, and heroin in Hampton Roads. He was working on a a 12-and-a-half-year sentence for getting caught with five kilos of coke. He was cooperating as a government witness in several cases.
7: He spent a lot of time, both before he was in custody for the federal indictments and then after he was in custody, sort of dangling the carrot in front of the authorities' face. They they called him in to talk to him about the drug case in at the FBI office. And when he went in and realized they pretty much have me by the short hairs here, I better say something that's going to be more interesting to them than I am and claimed at that point that he had information about who killed Decker.
0: The FBI hooked up Davenport with Virginia Beach Detectives. Over the course of several interviews, his story shifted, especially on some of the key details. But eventually it went something like this. Before he was locked up, Davenport had been parked outside the Atlantis on the night Decker was killed. He said he was there to pull what's known as getting licks, drug dealers ripping off other drug dealers. The club was packed that night. The parking lot that encircles it was full. Overflow cars were parked up and down the shoulder of Oceana Boulevard, all the way down to the borrow pit. Davenport said he wound up backing into a spot just outside an entrance to the parking lot. He said he had a couple of buddies with him, They were keeping an eye on a blue Bentley that belonged to a dealer named Chip. Davenport was planning to tail Chip home to find out where he lived so he could come back later and break into the place.
6: Davenport said that around 2 a.m. two men in black hoodies came walking from around the back of the club. They walked past his car and headed in the direction of the borrowed pit. Maybe 15 seconds later, he heard a gunshot. Then the men came hurrying back. That's when Davenport says he got out of his car he says he's the kind of guy who likes to be ready for trouble. But the two walked on past him again and headed back around the rear of the club. Then a car pulled out from back there. Davenport assumed it was the two men leaving. He says he decided to leave too. The cops would be coming. When he and his boys rolled past the barrel pit, he noticed a two-toned Ford pickup, Deckers, parked on the shoulder. He said its passenger door was open and the dome light was on. He told police he recognized one of the two men, a guy he knew from Norfolk, Raymond Perry. Later, he told police that he recognized the other one, too, as Kareem Turner. He eventually picked
0: the two out of a lineup. Davenport became the prosecution's star witness, testifying before a special grand jury and at a string of hearings. Bryant put other informants on the stand, too.
3: You, you want to get them uh, on, on the record uh, so that they can't weasel out. You, that's what you
0: hope, that they won't then weasel out. But over time, Stanton says, Davenport ended up giving like nine different statements.
7: When they questioned him in front of the special grand jury, they only asked him questions designed to elicit answers that fit their theory of the case. None of the questions even vaguely addressed all of the inconsistencies between the guys, several statements. It just sounded to the grand jury sitting there like, oh, this is a lock. True bill.
6: In a recording of one of his calls, Davenport brags to a friend about his cooperation.
4: Man, I went in the courtroom and burned that nigga ass up. What the fuck you talking about? How you think they put my name in the paper? Man, I was on the stand, man. I went in the courtroom, man, and burned a nigga
6: up. The jail administration will disconnect your call in
4: three minutes. Oh, they ain't. When he went back to court Yeah, He go. He got to go to high court. When he go to high court, I'll finish him. But we went to preliminary. They asked who killed him. I said, man, there he go right there, man. There the dude who killed the man right there. Uh huh. I don't do no motherfucking playing, man. Man, I need my freedom, man, and I need my money, man. They ain't playing. Look, I need my check, nigga. I might I might get an old caprice to put police on and Put that bitch on some 28s. <laughs> put the light on the outside and everything. Bitch wanna call me the law, bitch. I'm gonna put police on my shit. Funny
6: the boy. jail administration will disconnect your call in two minutes. Put on
4: the tip. Put on the motherfucking license plate. $100,000 snitch, nigga.
8: It's very possible that any jailhouse snitch can tell you the truth in every, in every way. Okay, it's also possible that they may lie to you from the beginning to the very end.
6: That's Stanton's PI again, Larry Smith.
8: You have to remember that people who are incarcerated, there's, there's, a, very, there's a very small sense of civic responsibility behind the walls. Mm -hmm. Okay, There's usually a quid pro quo. You give something, you get something in return. And And I dealt with jailhouse snitches when I was in the Bureau on a number of occasions. And they can tell you the truth. But once you get their statement, it's imperative that you go out and you vet that statement.
4: I'm a major motherfucking nigga, man. I'm a hero, man. I can't wait till I get my $100,000 reward when I get off of this. Uh-huh. Yeah, Man, you're facing enough time, bitch, you're going to spill it. You can get your gangster ass all. Oh, you're a gangster. You're a cold gangster. But them people talk about getting Chief 25 years flat, Chief Lip going to get the moving so quick. No, I, don't got to, I don't know shit. But the thing is, the that. shit you do know, you'll think of it. Huh? The shit you do know, you'll get the thinking of it and making up shit to go with it. <laughs> 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 I'm being real. 25, you can, okay, you know them little 30 days you do in jail. Imagine doing that 25 years straight and you could do something about it by opening it. Man, come on, stop playing.
2: If you watch a movie, and let's say it's Spider-Man or whatever it is, and I ask you what happens the next day, you're going to know a lot about what happened in the movie. You're going to have a lot of detail.
0: You're listening to Tom Shepard. You heard from him in the last episode. He and Emily Munn represented Kareem Turner.
2: If I ask you a month after, six months after, a year after, slowly and surely, it's, just, it's, just, it's, it's, it's human nature. The details will start to fall away. If you look at Davenport's statements, the opposite happens. When he's first interviewed, he has no idea who the second person is, and he makes that very clear. And each time he's interviewed, more details appear, to the point where he's asking, well, if you show me a picture, I might be able to give you a name. And then it's not until, I think, interview three or four where he mentions Kareem Turner. So the idea that they're all sort of saying the same thing, oh, eventually, yeah, eventually they did. But when they're at the very beginning, when the information
0: is... The freshest, he has none. We asked Brian about Davenport's evolving story.
3: Well, I'm not going to discuss uh, Davenport in particular or, or say that it applied to him or to anybody else in the case. But sometimes that occurs. Uh, but the um, the backup to that is that the prosecution is required to give the defense any inconsistent statements uh, that, that a witness has made that's contrary to either their grand jury testimony or any other particular testimonies.
0: Why, why go through with the prosecution in this case if that was all that the, the, you have was these, these types of witnesses?
3: Because we got to the point um, through the special grand jury where we felt like we had enough in numbers of credible witnesses whose stories matched up enough that there was a solid basis for a jury, if they believed their testimony, to find um, uh, Perry guilty beyond a reasonable doubt.
6: Stanton's PI caught up with one of the guys Davenport claimed was with him that night. Smith wouldn't tell us the guy's name.
8: I actually took people to the crime scene witnesses to the crime scene itself way after the fact of course uh, and said okay show me What happened? Couldn't show me There's no possible way the information that was delivered to us through discovery could have been true,
0: there's just no way Did they admit to it? Were they like yeah okay fine
7: Yeah I mean it it was blatantly clear to the witnesses that Larry had taken out there that their story was bullshit. The physical scene itself, if you looked at what these people were allegedly telling the police, there's no way they could have seen anything because the measurements clearly showed that the location they claimed to have been was something like 102 yards away, in the pitch black, in the pouring rain, through a privacy fence and a whole lot of bushes and shrubs and weeds. <laughs> it just it was, it, it was a virtual impossibility.
8: That was one of the biggest things that concerned me, the information that was uh, being given to the police, I think, in some cases, from some of the witnesses. If, if they could actually see what they said they saw in those circumstances... I would have been shocked because in the broad daylight, when we went out there, the two attorneys and myself, with measuring tapes and recording devices and cameras, in the broad daylight, I couldn't see it. You know, if anything looks to be too good to be true, it is.
0: The Decker case is stretched on, 2012 turned into 2013, then 2014. Decker's widow, Dawn, was a fixture in the courtroom.
9: I wanted to be there. I wanted them to see who I was.
6: Did you go to, like, every hearing you could? Every
9: one that I could. I don't think that there was anyone that I didn't go to.
0: Did you, were you convinced at that point, I mean, it had already been a couple of years and then this happens... How, certain, how sure were you that these were the guys, they had the right guys?
9: I was told 110% these were them. So I thought, finally, you know, this is this is it. This is what I've been waiting for.
0: But defense attorneys had been eavesdropping, hoping to catch one of the witnesses saying something that indicated he was lying.
7: We ended up subpoenaing phone calls from every single identified snitch in jail during the entire pendency of the case. That probably, at least for me, ended up being something along... It was well over 50 discs worth of jailhouse calls. And every jailhouse call can go up to 15 minutes? 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Uh, And there might be 50 calls or something on
6: a disc. We did the math. That's at least 17 days worth of listening.
7: So you're pretty much losing your mind. But... Every now and then, you know, what you need to know is in there because these people cannot stop talking. And as it turned out... So you
6: have to wade through all of those calls every minute. What, I mean, you're hearing all kinds of stuff, I'm assuming. Oh, right? really
7: disgusting phone sex a lot of times. And then there they
6: were from Davenport. So oh, I ain't
4: going to visit tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We still have visits. I'm just saying I had a picture ready. Oh shit, yeah. Well how you gonna do that? If you you know what I'm saying? I'm gonna have to wing it. Who that motherfucker look like Do you? He's brown skin with a low cut. To me he look older than nineteen if if well I think he's about twenty or something now, right? Yeah. He got like sideburns, look like he got some little sabers.
0: Have that picture ready. Who that looked like to you? That's Davenport asking what Perry looks like.
4: They kinda look like CeeLo. <laughs> His nose ain't big like CeeLo. Okay, I need to know that. So he favor CeeLo? Yeah, he favor him a little bit. And he got them thick eyebrows. They kinda arch a little bit. So like go up and then come down? Yeah. Like he making that face like The Rock make when he sent his eyebrow up. No, no Going too far.
6: There's several calls like that where Davenport asks about Perry's appearance so he can point him out in court. In one, Stanton says he even asked for a copy of a newspaper with Perry's photo in it. Munn and Shepard say the calls were a huge blow to the prosecution's case. I mean, there were just
1: constantly calls where he's, he's setting things up, he's reaching out to other witnesses, he's talking about how he's going to report and get the crime line money, which, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: calls that into question for us, too. That was a red flag.
2: You know, the other thing that they didn't have, they didn't have any photographs or other evidence that Perry and, and Turner knew each other, hung out. You know, usually in a social media page, you would see something. They didn't really have any evidence of a relationship you know, usually, you don't do the sorts of crimes that we're talking about here with complete strangers. You know, usually there is a relationship that isn't difficult to establish. Uh,
7: this is a case I would loved dearly to have taken to trial and exposed all of the really bad investigation that had or what was supposed to be passing for an investigation that had happened in this case, not just to Raymond Perry, but also to Kareem Turner. But we have obviously a duty to the client to get the best result. I don't want my clients in jail any longer than they have to be, especially if they're innocent.
0: So Munn and Shepard went to prosecutors and told them what they'd learned about Davenport and some of the other snitches. It was a gamble.
1: If you know that your client's innocent, then do you trust the system enough to just let it all play out at trial? Or do you trust Commonwealth attorneys to do the right thing and handle the evidence when you take it to them in advance?
2: I actually said, I don't want to embarrass you guys. This is what we found. They were kind of blown away. And, you know, they didn't make up their mind right away. They they sat on it for a few days. Those days were. Because then you don't know if you did the right thing. You're second-guessing everything.
0: Turner's trial was supposed to start that Monday, March 17th, 2014.
2: They let us know on Friday afternoon that they would be dropping the charges on Monday, but they wanted to, they weren't receptive to the idea of letting him out before, before Monday. So then when they let us know on Friday, I was worried that something was going to happen to him, not, you know, related, but just an unfortunate accident or something that happens to him in custody while he's waiting to be released on Monday. So that weekend, I was I like, was, oh, man, just please, <laughs> let's get to Monday.
1: Why would you want this guy in custody for one more hour if you're acknowledging that you can't prove the case? We went to see him, and we explained to him, you know, it's on the docket for Monday, it's going to be dropped on Monday. And he never one time said, why can't I be out now? He said, I got some money left in my canteen. I'm going to order everything that they can sell over the weekend and give it to people and myself. So his reaction was not even to be mad at the system, and I, none of us are young African-American people. And so I think it's really hard to imagine what it's like, whether you're innocent or guilty, whether you've been in trouble or not, that if you grow up on the street and you've been around a lot of people who have spent time in jail, then to, to us, 48 more hours was the ultimate insult. It was like the ultimate kind of flipping the bird to somebody who you know isn't guilty.
3: There are lots of cases that go, and it's not just here, all over the country, I'm sure, where the police and the prosecution, we know in our guts and our hearts uh, that this person committed this crime. But we don't have credible, admissible, and that's another issue, admissible evidence under the rules of, of a, what is admissible evidence to convict this person. And you just, you, just, you just hope and pray that something else will happen and you'll get them on something else because you're apparently not going to get them
0: on this one, even though you know it's them. Mather saw it differently.
5: I'm well, be careful how I say this, that Virginia B.'s Commonwealth's attorney's office has done some amazing work, and they have an incredibly talented staff there, but this was not their finest hour.
0: Stalley appeared on WTKR the day he officially pulled the plug. We have an obligation to stop the prosecution of the case. That's what we did today.
5: Um, at this point, I don't feel that, that we have sufficient evidence to proceed to trial. That may change in the future. We'll have to see. I contacted Dawn myself, and, and it was a very difficult phone call to make. Um, you know, Dawn
6: has been through more than, than anybody should in life. Dawn says the news took her right back to the day her husband was murdered.
9: It literally tore me apart. I was already working. I was actually working for an OBGYN at St. Paul Hospital, and I couldn't function. I couldn't do anything. Um, it was early enough in the morning that I was able to talk to my office manager, and I went home because I just I couldn't even stop crying because it was horrifying.
0: When Monday rolled around, it still took a while for Turner to be released.
1: We sat in that parking lot in the rain all day. And we, there are moments of being very angry because it felt like the system was deliberately delaying. We wanted to be there. We wanted to kind of hand him over to his family. And, and also, we were worried that his community would react the wrong way. Um, we were worried that instead of being grateful and kind of celebrating his patience and our work, that it would be to kind of rally back or to get revenge or to go find people who had lied about him or to do something bad about the police. We were worried about that.
0: Turner said a few words to waiting reporters.
8: I don't know why they did what they did, but I just want to let y'all know I was innocent from the beginning. But right now, I do feel great. I just want to celebrate.
6: This is Rekiria Bibbins, a friend
0: of Turner's. When he got out of, of jail and and the charges were dropped, what was that like?
9: That was like the best, best, like taking the kid to Disney World for the first time. That was the best, like, when I heard, when I just heard about it, like just being there, I'm just like, dang, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's really true. Like, I used to pray every night, like, so you know, we just pray, camera. like, I'm going to come home, like, this going to be, you know what I'm saying? So when he did come home,
4: like,
6: it was just like, dang, like, wow. Some ugly websites picked up the story. The same thing had happened when Decker died, remember? Only now it was websites on the other side of the spectrum. Here's a headline from the neo-Nazi Daily Stormer. Charges dropped against black brute for killing white woman's cop husband.
0: Turner's lawyers gave him some advice.
1: We met with him and his family the following, later on that week or early the next week, and that's when we had that conversation where we said, you know, the police don't like you. The Virginia Beach Police Department doesn't like you, and the Norfolk Police Department, they don't know what to make of you. But I would guess that you probably get pulled over if you have a taillight out or if you run a stop sign, and they're going to run you and they're going to see that you were charged with this, and that's not good for anybody. So the worst thing you could do would let somebody put a gun in your hand or go find people who you feel like wronged you. You really have to turn the other cheek and get that you got your life back. It looked like you didn't, weren't going to have it for a while and you got it back and you should make something great of it. And we told him that we thought he should leave town. But for people with not very much, you know, with limited means and limited experience, that's really unheard of. But we tried.
6: It took a few months for the case against Perry to crumble. He was staying in prison anyway, serving a long sentence for unrelated crimes. Prosecutors walked it back in stages. First, they announced they'd no longer seek the death penalty for Perry. When they finally folded completely, Stanton was surprised what they said to the public.
7: When they dropped the charges against Raymond, they talked very vehemently to the media, they being the Commonwealth, uh, you know, we're going to reinvestigate this case. You know, we're going to find out what happened. You know, if, if it turns out we find evidence that these guys really were involved, we'll charge them again. And that's never going to happen because there is no such evidence.
0: Brian thinks police and prosecutors did everything they could to solve the case. You know, I say that because I'm not going to pretend I know
3: everything that comes with the attention of the Virginia Beach Detective Bureau. But knowing them and having worked with them for almost 14 years... I know that if something came to them, and they would, you know, they'll eventually come to the prosecution and say, we got this, we followed up on it, it didn't pan out, you know, because sometimes you'd hear things, and they were going to ride drive to so-and-so to interview somebody, and everybody's saying, oh boy, this could be the big one. And then they come back, and you can tell by the expressions on their face when they walk in the door. It wasn't the big
0: one. But Stanton doesn't think they checked out every possibility.
7: They didn't follow up on a lot of what would seem to be obvious potential other suspect evidence from the text messages, if if nothing else. They were more concerned with the fact that what was in there was going to be embarrassing to Victor Decker's family. And I get that. It, it wasn't going to be a pleasant experience. But that isn't your job. You know, your job is to try to figure out who did it. Coming up
0: on the shot.
1: We asked the Commonwealth Attorney if someone had given Decker's widow a heads up that you know this was potentially embarrassing slash damaging information that none of us enjoyed the obligation to share with the public.
4: So there became like a folklore. And while even though these young men, none of us believe committed the crime, it became somewhat of a badge of honor to even be charged with such a
8: cry.
6: And I just feel really sad about this story today. It's really sad. It's just really sad. All of it is. Thanks for listening. And if you like this podcast, do us a favor and go on iTunes and give us a good review. Five-star reviews will help more listeners find us. The shot was produced by Randy Greenwell and edited by Bill Henry, with special help from Josh Davidsburg. Music is by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. WTKR contributed TV news clips. Will Halp is our digital graphics editor. For graphics, photos, and more, go to pilotonline.com/slash/the-shot.
0: Sources for this podcast include documents and other materials found in court records or obtained by the pilot from credible sources who wish to remain anonymous.